0: The Curmudgeon Rock Report Curmudgeon rhymes with bludgeon Rock gods do it right So do rock nerds We're here for the rock 1965, 2021, doesn't matter Crude, rude Yet somehow sophisticated. Welcome. Enjoy the show. So, Arturo, man, how you doing?
1: I'm doing very well. It's very hot out here, uh, here in South Korea. I'm in my air-conditioned man cave. Um, oh, but uh, man cave, yeah. Yeah. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah, I, I I, guess that's a good description, seeming how you still have all your action figures and all your music books and, <laughs> and all of that. Folks, you don't get the benefit of seeing what I'm seeing, but uh, it's uh, it's a lot of fun, so... to the parallel universe. What's the parallel universe? Uh, Really anything you want it to be, but in our construct, it's where the good music is actually played on the radio and there's still such a thing as bona fide rock stars and not like, uh, you know, uh, mysterious and uh, enigmatic rappers. No, we're talking about the real rock stars still roam the earth.
1: Or or, or Disney starlets like uh, Olivia Rodrigo.
0: Oh, oh, okay. That that That's a subject for another day. Let's not pick on uh, Olivia Rodrigo. Uh, clearly, she does not live in the parallel universe. She's living in the normal universe, which is why we don't cover her here. But uh, so the concept is, if we still had rock stars, and if Arturo and I were pre-clear uh, channel radio programmers, what would we be putting on the air? Hmm. <laughs> now, with that uh, said, Arturo, uh, what are you bringing into uh, this side uh, of, the, uh, of the dimension of the, the divider this week?
1: Well, this, is, this album actually came out last year, but it's, it's an opportunity for me to talk about one of my most favorite fucking bands in the world right now. And the name of this band is Mets, capital M, capital E, capital T as in Thomas, capital Z as in Zebra. And uh, their new album, or newish album, Atlas Vending. Now, back in the early to mid-teens, when retro 80s synth pop was the sound de rigueur in indie rock, this trio from Toronto fucking blasted out of the gate with two explosive, abrasive slabs of grinding, churning guitars and throat-throttling bass that made wimpy acts like MGMT and Tame Impala irrelevant almost overnight. Uh, The two albums in question, their self-titled debut from 2012 and the follow-up, simply titled Two Roman Numerals from 2015, recalled the nasty, noisy sludge of the Jesus Lizard combined with the emotional and cathartic pull of early Bleach era Nirvana. With two of the 30 best rock albums of the past decade, in our curmudgeonly parallel universe, they would be one of the biggest, most respected, and most loved bands in the world. Anyway, after their disappointing third album, Strange Peace, in 2017, which saw them take their noise fests to like really off-putting and disappointing musical extremes, they bounced back last year with Atlas Vending, Their second album's intimations and hints of melodies and sing-along choruses finally come to a much welcome fruition on this album, which, with each listen, seems like a turning point record for them. It seems clear that singer, guitarist, chief songwriter Alex Edkins has found love and must be in some kind of fulfilling relationship because... Well, the chorus to No Ceiling literally is I Found a Love, and it's not being ironic. <laughs> uh, th- this kind of optimism permeates through other tracks, such as Draw Us In and Blind Youth Industrial Park. However, if you love the full-on aural noise assault of Metz's earlier classic albums, you also won't find much for wanting here. This is clearly not the safety zone of Green Day or the Foo Fighters we're talking about. Okay, the guitars and bass still roar with unmitigated ferocity and drummer Hayden Menzies still pounds the living and unliving shit out of the drums like Dave Grohl used to. Uh, Atlas Vending is a lesson to all bands out there that expanding your lyrical and sonic palette doesn't mean you have to wuss out and stop rocking out. One last thing, this album actually peaked at number 69 on the Billboard album charts, which to me is pretty astounding considering how abrasive and subterranean this music is. I guess there are a lot more people out there singing the praises of Mets, not just me. Then again, with YouTube and all the streaming and pirating going on out there, it doesn't take that many actual sales of records to chart highly these days.
0: Well, that was well, that was I going to say. You got to take <laughs> Billboard, uh, uh, bill, Billboard's... Uh rankings with a grain of salt these days yeah. I mean who the heck knows how you count things anymore i mean if yeah. you if you're doing like traditional sound scan kind of things, yeah. it's like number one record uh you know by uh what weird owl with like six thousand copies you know <laughs> yeah i so. For me, uh, this week I'm kind of going uh, in an opposite uh, direction. Yeah, way opposite (laughs) from from, from Mets. I guess you could say way opposite. Although in some cases, you know, I mean it's it's not it's not blast off like Mets is, but this is more quieter and more artsy, and uh, it's kind of a uh, meeting of the uh, uh, modern avant garde, sort of modern Americana. Uh, um, pads or minds, Uh, and uh, this is an album uh, by Matt Sweeney and Bonnie Prince Billy called Superwolves. Now, a lot of our listeners will probably be excited to hear about this because back in 2005, uh, these guys uh, set the Brooklyn uh, and uh, other uh, uh, towns uh, indie uh, record stores on fire with the, uh, the album Superwolf. And so here's the uh, the skinny on um, these guys. Now, Bonnie Prince Billy, of course, for mo- uh, many of you know, is the actor and artist Will Oldham. And that's his uh, nom de plume. Uh, he's uh, from Louisville, Kentucky, and he has made a uh, career, at least musically, of uh, taking a, a surrealist poetry bent and putting it to uh, Appalachian uh uh, influences and Celtic influences and other country and folk uh, influences. but the appalachia thing is is the heaviest uh, one uh, for him. and you know very uh, very dark in some respects, very uh, surrealist, uh, very uh, outlandish in some ways uh, you know with his with his lyrics and it's just very uh, a lot of violence and sex that come together and a lot of Uh, spiritual and Christian uh, uh, references too. Now you put him with Matt Sweeney, who is in many respects one of the most interesting uh, and grand uh, indie uh, darling guitarists of the last 30 years. A lot of folks will remember the band Chavez from the mid to late 90s, which is about as art rock as it got back then. And Sweeney uh, is he's prodigious in his uh, guitar skills uh, and very, uh, very melodic, very angular, very uh, razor sharp uh, arpeggios and uh, uh, arrangements as a lead guitarist. Uh, His uh, closest brush with fame was being in a band with uh, Billy Corgan and Jimmy Chamberlain from the Smashing Pumpkins called Swan which uh, somehow survived a couple of years after Smashing Pumpkins fell apart the first time uh, back in the early aughts. And so these guys, uh, they're out there, uh, kind of the darlings of their own corners of the the world, uh, the indie rock world, and they had become friends. And then uh, an idea was born, this is for Superwolf, where Sweeney was saying, hey, you know, well, why don't, why don't you write me some lyrics, and I'll take those lyrics, and then I'll write the music to them, and then we'll trade the tapes or we'll trade the recordings back and forth, and and we'll go from there. And it really is this this great uh, this great record where uh, they were kind of meeting each other in the middle in terms of uh, in terms of their uh, music, in terms of the melodies, um, how to bring the lyrical concepts to life and just a really strong record that actually does bash the heck out in a couple of spots, but is mostly, uh, guitar and voice and and harmonies. And so, uh, they came back, uh, during the pandemic, although I guess this has been in the works for a few years, they came back together and essentially did the same thing. And so instead of calling it super wolf part two, which would have been awesome, uh, they went with the more rote Super Wolves. And and so, again, you know, the same exercise. Matt Sweeney writes all the music, plays all the guitars. And uh, Will Oldham, uh, Bonnie's uh, Prince Billy, uh, writes all the lyrics and uh, sings all the melodies. Uh, and uh, you have uh, here a very, very intriguing record. And so you've got uh, some really menacing Uh, tunes like Make Worry For Me, which uh, is really uh, designed to uh, be stalker chic uh, with uh, its imagery of uh, a predator. Uh, It's almost like the wolf uh, uh, announcing uh, his presence uh, before he gets to grandma's house. Uh, it's, It's really kind of intriguing. And then you've got a lot of other uh, uh, interesting stuff going on uh, there, too. Uh, you've got uh, a lot of uh, parents and children imagery, which makes sense since Oldham's uh, father and mother both died within the last five years, uh, his mother uh, widowing away from Alzheimer's disease. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, sort of uh, taking care of, of parents and parents assuring uh, uh, kids that they'll still be there even when they die. So there's a lot of uh, that imagery, and then you know you've got um, with Oldham in his most pr- provocative state. Uh, there's the song uh, "God Is Waiting," uh, which uh, really again this is you know, inspired by uh, his mother again, and uh, it's a really uh, a really dark uh, song, and uh, it, it ends with uh, an astonishing uh, lyric. Uh, which, uh, you know, it's amazing that anybody can get away with this, but, uh, he's, he's saying, so the last chorus is, I asked her why she stopped and wasn't moving through. She said, cause God was waiting. So she was waiting too. And then post chorus, it says, but I'm not waiting. No, not waiting anymore. God can fuck herself and does hardcore. and yeah exactly and then you know hardcore is sung in this beautiful harmony by uh by oldham and and, and sweeney and goes there Uh, what you end up with here is just another record that uh i guess captures the magic of superwolf but does it in a way that you know back when they were doing that they were in their mid-30s now they're both in their early 50s and i think this more reflects Uh, at least uh, in theme, how life has kicked uh, Will Hold'em in the teeth here lately, which if you've ever seen a photo of him, there's plenty of teeth to kick. Now, uh, let us get to the topic of uh, this week's episode, which, you know, to to me is is fairly exciting. And uh, let me just uh, set this up for you all. Lots and lots and lots of artists have covered the songs of Bob Dylan for nearly 60 years now. There's a reason for that, of course. Dylan is a goddamn good songwriter.
1: Or was, and, a, da- was a damn good songwriter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I don't know. There's still, you know, like every bad Bob Dylan album actually has a couple of decent songs. So Murder Most Foul, I've, I've come to, to decide, is not a bad song. Anyway, <laughs> as I was saying, and hey, why not cover Dylan? If someone can find emotional and intellectual depths within the contours of American popular music, that you're just not capable of finding yourselves, why not just tap into that and give your own interpretation your best shot? Besides, if you have extraordinary gifts of song and interpretation as a singer, or as an arranger, or as a guitarist, or as a band leader, exploring your own uh, Dylan seems like an excellent challenge. The careers of some artists are tied intimately to the covers of songs from Dylan's jaw-dropping early catalog. If you listen to this podcast we're guessing The Birds, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Joan Baez came immediately to your mind. You probably also heard Hendrix's solo to All Along the Watchtower. But the world of the Dylan cover goes much, much further down the spiral staircase. That's the staircase that Arturo and I will be walking down ourselves this episode. We're not as audacious, or frankly as ridiculous, as Rolling Stone's new list of 80 best Dylan covers of all time. For what it's worth, uh, we've been planning this episode for a while, and we're really not reacting to the Jan Winter machine here. But what's up with 80 as a best number there anyway, you know, besides the age? I mean, it's kind of funny. They could have gone with a 1080 if they wanted to, right? Now, uh, we're not in the best business on this episode. Uh, we'll let others analyze Hendrix and Roger McGuinn. No, rather, we've each selected five covers of Bob Dylan songs we find really, really interesting, if not utterly fascinating. The oldest of these dates to 1964. The newest ones both date to 2007. We could give some love to Chrissy Hind, who just released an album of Dylan covers in May. Yuck. (laughs) Yes. But her best efforts just don't make our cut. And with that said... It's time to serve somebody, namely you, with the love and, yes, theft of Bob Dylan. Uh, like any to, thoughts on this topic? Yeah, uh, I do. There's...
1: I like to make it known that I'm a Dylan fan. I know I said he was a good songwriter, and I, and I still maintain that he was. All bands and artists have a shelf life. No one is good forever, and Dylan stopped being good a long, long time ago. But I'm a fan of his – generally, I am a fan of his You know, classic stuff. And uh, I'm of the opinion that roughly 80% of Dylan covers suck ass. (laughs) 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 I I much, much prefer Dylan's originals over almost anyone else's covers. It's very, very few, very rare that there's a Dylan cover that's actually better or as good as the original. So my choices for Dylan covers here come from what I deem to be a very, very small pool of good Dylan covers.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm totally in agreement with you there, dude. Uh, that Dil- most of the time, if not all of the time, Dylan's uh, versions are better. Why? I, I think, you know, as a general statement that uh, a lot of people can find the music, a lot of people can find the soul, a lot of people uh, can find uh, the interest, they can find that connection to the themes uh, they can express it whether through the arrangements of the vocals but the thing is uh, they can't approximate dylan as a singer
1: yeah
0: uh, th- that's where it comes dylan knew how to sing his songs and it's very very seldom that anybody can approximate dylan uh as a vocalist or as that the interpreter the vocal interpreter of his songs um and the few that do are worth celebrating, and I think we cover a couple of instances of that uh, in this episode, where where folks found Mount uh, know, Bob's uh, uh, real meaning and were able to get it out either through uh, bettering him as as a, a singer and, and expressor expresser of the words themselves. There's one or,
1: particular song that I, on my list that definitely matches all of that. Yep.
0: Yeah, no, I yeah, I think I know which one you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And and then and then there's a few other times too that um you know and something I'll get into on my list is like sometimes uh, Dylan is not necessarily playing it straight yeah. uh, in, in his narratives. And then when somebody comes along and does play it straight, then it's like, oh okay, well that's kind of what Bob was really getting at. So mm-hmm. that happens sometimes too. Yeah. But in general uh, th- that's why I'm saying you can't do best Dylan covers. Um, because what, like, like you said, that would be like, if we're going to do like best Dylan covers, you'd really only have what, three songs on it. Right. So it's, yeah. So it's, so it's basically, I'm, ge- what? I'm
1: generous to make it 10, maybe 15
0: out of, yeah, I mean, out of
1: like 10,000.
0: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But th- well, think about it. What's the list all along the watchtower by Hendrix. Any uh, the Mr- birds. Th- yeah. Yeah. Mr. Mr. Tambourine man by the birds. And then, like, what, Positively 4th Street by Jerry Garcia Band? And that's about it? Nope. Where would the Curmudgeon Rock Report be without Anchor? Seriously, we wouldn't be anywhere without Anchor. Anchor provides the terrific platform we use for hosting and automatic distribution to numerous popular podcasting communities, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. They also supply us with an RSS feed. Did you find us on Stitcher or on Podcast Addict? Thank that RSS feed. Anchor is a lot more than all that, though. You can record your audio and then stack your individual recorded segments for easy editing. You can also store audio files and access Spotify, sound effects, and even voice messages from listeners for added juice. Access our episodes at anchor.fm slash curmudgeonly and put yourself in the game with Anchor today. Okay, so uh, let us now uh, begin our foray into the love and the theft of Bob Dylan songs. Uh, Arturo will uh, dominate the first half of this episode with his picks of five really interesting covers that appeal uh, to him. With that said, Arturo, what do you got?
1: Oh, man, this the first. I'm starting off with my favorite of the bunch, Um, Eddie Vedder and Mike McCready doing a live acoustic version of Masters of War from the Bob Dylan Tribute Concert back in October 16th, 1992. And yes, you can find this on YouTube, the whole Dylan Tribute Show from 92. You can find the whole thing on YouTube. Here's a story. To celebrate Dylan's, at the time, 30 years of being in the music business, A whole slew of bands and artists, mostly of the older Baby Boomer generation variety, gathered to pay tribute to The Bard. It was filmed and recorded as a live album that was released the following year. Now, amidst the usual and expected Baby Boomer cocksucking fest, uh, the absolute standout and most riveting performance of the whole night was an acoustic performance by the lead singer and lead guitarist of a young, then-up-and-coming band called Pearl Jam. Eddie Vedder and Mike McCready, with help from the Saturday Night Live band's G.E. Smith on Mandolin, performed the song, but it is Vedder's passionate vocals that deliver a masterclass of interpretation and phrasing. Now, tons of people have covered Dylan throughout the years, but, and we, Chris and I, you and I, we spoke about this earlier, about how tough it is to cover Dylan because only Dylan can sing like Dylan. But there's another aspect to it, and it's the lyrics, and not everyone truly gets and understands Dylan's lyrics. Yes. A lot of artists can interpret Dylan's words in their own way and reflect that in their cover versions, and that's fine. That's all fine and good. In fact, most of the time, that's what happens. However, there's something to be said for understanding the songwriter's intent and what the song is really about, what the author is trying to express and getting it. And in this version, Vetter truly gets, with a capital G, he gets Masters of Wars, anti-war and anti-greedy, corrupt politician, polemic. The way Vetter stretches out the syllables, his intonation, and just the overall unbridled passion he brings to the performance, reflects what Dylan must have actually felt while he wrote that song in late 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, by comparison, Dylan's original version, as great as it is, is pretty emotionally subdued <laughs> compared to you know the. The, the the onslaught Vetter puts in this tr- in this song, um, it was a star turn for a singer who would go on to be the supposed rock voice of his generation and one of the greatest singers of his era. Like we all knew Pearl Jam was a great band when Vetter sang this song and just blew all the other baby boomer assholes away. Okay, no, this guy's a fucking star, <laughs> and there we go.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, well, it's interesting. You mentioned that Dylan sounds subdued on his version. I, I would not say that. I think that I think it's one of his angriest songs. Oh,
1: he's not subdued and, compared to Vetter, he's subdued.
0: Oh, okay. I I, I, I get it now. Yeah. I mean because the interesting thing about this is uh I'd still go just barely with Dylan's version here
1: me too Me too. but, but yeah. I, I love vetter's passion in this version
0: yes oh absolutely not lacking in the passion and then when he uh when he uh says uh that line about you hiding in your mansion yeah uh the uh, vetter's phrasing and growling of mansion is like the most oh man uh chills down the spine yeah. uh inducing and so it's he really really taps into it uh but Dylan really just hangs on every single word with an enunciation and a clarity, yeah. uh, that really just makes that riveting. And it's just him and just the acoustic guitar. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, like you said, Vetter. that was a star turn. And I think that that was about the time when, uh, you know, a lot of folks were not taking uh, Pearl Jam as seriously as Nirvana. Yeah, uh, when they first broke out that first year, they were seeing. I remember there were some critics that were kind of derisively referring to Pearl Jam as this era's uh, big country or uh, this era's <laughs> chi- this era's cheap trick Yeah, uh, and I think that with it was with efforts like this where you said you know uh, Vetter's like uh, twenty nine at the time and McCready's like twenty six and they're I and mean, uh, I mean,
1: at- I mean, this time Vetter's twenty seven. 27 or 28, I think.
0: Yeah, no, he's, yeah, he's, he's 20, 28, pushing 29. Um, but yeah, cause he's, um, as far as I know, Vetter's like older than most of those guys. Um, yeah, I, I'm
1: looking on Wikipedia now. Vetter was born in late 64.
0: Oh, okay. I got gotcha. you. So yeah, so he's, he's there. But anyway, you have these young guys and they go in and they just blow everyone away. Although I will say this, uh, I've always enjoyed that show uh, in some respects. Yes, there's some crap on it, but Neil Young was phenomenal on oh, that yeah. show. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah. Ju- just the, the version of "Just Like Tom Thumb's Blues" on that. Yeah, uh, you know, Chrissy Hind is actually pretty good with "I Shall Be Released" on that, and so it was. It was a very good, very faithful, uh, very uh, reverent and in- passionate uh, tribute to Dylan. Uh, although, I mean, it could have done without like seven or eight guys. Uh, taking turns on my back pages. Yeah, it's just just like okay, It's just like wankery. Where uh, I, I always kind of figured it was because it's like seven or eight of them, and they're probably all just hanging out with their guitar off until it was their part to the solo. Yeah. Uh, that's the only way it would have made any sense, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, like you know, eight, eight guys pretending to jam out to not the most lead heavy song in terms yeah. of the verses. So right. what are you gonna do?
1: All right, my next. Uh, uh, choice of from that very small pool of Dylan covers that I like I have dragged this one out and it is PJ Harvey another 90's rock icon doing Highway 61 Revisited from her classic 1993 album Rid of Me now Rid of Me is not only one of the best albums of the 1990's it's one of the greatest rock albums ever made period In fact, she has a few albums that deserve that accolade. Um, Her version of the title track from Dylan's classic 1965 album begins like several of the songs on Rid of Me. It's slow, tense, ominous guitar strum with Harvey's vocals oddly sounding like they're coming from a faraway transistor radio. And then before you know it, it kicks in with that heavy, post-punk-flavored, blues-grunge sound that Harvey was doing, doing at the time. Slow, fast dynamics punctuate the song, and Harvey's delivery of Dylan's surrealistic imagery matter more than the words themselves, as they're sung with the reckless abandon that the mood of the song requires. I I'm a, I love this album and I love this version, Chris. I know you don't like it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I well no the album. Uh, if you took this off, it would be just about perfect. Um, I mean, let's just put it this way: PJ Harvey has two of the best songs ever uh, written in the rock and roll canon about the male libido on this album.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, yeah, man size and fifty foot Queenie. Yeah, and
1: mandova uh, Casanova.
0: Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it just, uh, so there's a, there's a liberating, uh, sort of, uh, anti-feminism, I guess you want uh, you would want to call it, or it, it's a really provocative record, but nah, this, this just doesn't do it for me. I mean, it's just, I, I think it's, it's more clever and just more of, it's, it's more of a shtick, um, than, than it is anything else. Like you said, it's got that sort of nihilistic, um, uh, bang out grumbling, uh, uh, treatment, but I don't know. I just, uh, he, and obviously it doesn't come close to, uh, what Dylan was doing, you know? I mean, it's, it's really a lark by Dylan. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and obviously the way it's played on the record with the little blues piano and, and all of that kind of gives that away. And so, you know, taking a lark and turning it into this like super dark, uh, you know, uh, you know, your, your time is coming, uh, thing. It just kind of, eh. I don't know it's a little too pretentious and a little too like just uh, distorted uh for me. And again, I I think it's the only bad re- mark on the entire record. Otherwise, it's fantastic. And it you know, PJ Harvey deserved her uh her indie stardom and her uh profile back that back there in the 90s. Pretty much from 93, everything she did from 1992 to 2000 was almost perfect. And uh this right here is the almost.
1: No no winking on this next one. This is the 13th Floor Elevators doing their version of Dylan's It's All Over Now Baby Blue, titled just Baby Blue in this version, from their 1967 album Easter Everywhere. Hmm. Obviously, here we go way back to the psychedelic 60s for one of the grooviest, and especially considering the elevator's reputation at the time, one of the most understated of Dylan covers to come out that decade. Whereas Dylan's original is a languid folk ballad about presumably a woman whose personal life is falling apart, the Elevator's version is mid-tempo, almost ethereal psychedelia with beautifully swirling guitar leads layered high up in the mix. The other stark difference between Dylan's original and the Elevator's version is singer-guitarist Rocky Erickson's vocal performance. Whereas Dylan imbues his delivery with a snarky lack of pity, bordering on anger, Erickson sounds genuinely sad and compassionate, bordering on empathetic. The weepy twin guitar solos at the end serve as a crescendo that echoes Erickson's sadness while the song slowly fades out with Erickson reciting the chorus in spoken word form, clearly a foot or two behind the mic, adding to the drama of a tragic ending. Beautiful version of this song.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, gorgeous uh, guitar on it. And it's just, like you said, they they were one of the progenitors of the psychedelic uh, rock scene. And... uh, in some ways that was a bad thing and in other ways it was a good thing that they had this, uh, uh, strange and spooky side to them, but they also had this uh, gorgeous, um, uh, shimmering side to them. And, and this definitely reflects uh, that. And, you know, ultimately I'm kind of with you. I, I refer, I prefer this version uh, to Dylan's, uh, because oh, it's the kind I, I,
1: I still prefer Dylan's version, but, but, but this version is, is beautiful in its own way, you know?
0: Yeah, no, and it's interesting because you know, I mean, it's it's an incredible you know, melody and obviously a, a terrific lyric. But I don't know. No, it's interesting because like you said, you know, sometimes Dylan is a little too angry, comes on a little too strong in his songs. Yeah. Uh, where maybe he ought to play it with a little bit more melancholy, right? Uh, th- than he does, and so you know, the elevators capture the melancholy, uh, here, and and it's interesting though because um, you know, as I kind of said in the intro that. You know, if you can't get there yourself, you might as well uh, uh, sort of hang on to Bob's coattails. Yeah. Uh, And that's kind of what's going on here, too, because this is by far uh, the most artistic and the most disciplined uh, uh, cut from that record. The Easter Everywhere record. Yeah. Uh, You know, everything else is kind of a mess. I mean, come on, when your founder's an electric jug band uh, or electric jug player, (laughs) uh, which which is pretty cool, but it doesn't. Come anywhere near the word discipline, otherwise. Um, so, like I said, th- this uh, was a real kind of a, a. I guess back then, for a lot of people, must have been a curveball, but they yeah. they hit that curveball out of the park, and uh, it it really is just gorgeous, uh, yeah. especially the guitars.
1: And th- and the next one's a pretty is a very pretty version. This is Thea Gilmore doing "I Dreamed I Saw Saint Augustine" from "Songs from the Gutter" in two thousand two. Thea Gilmore is a British folk rocker, and she's known for having done some really affecting, resonant covers of some heavy-duty classic rock heavyweights. Throughout the Naughties, she tackled Van Morrison's Crazy Love, she did an awe-inspiring take on John Fogarty's Bad Moon Rising, and she did The Clash's Train in Vain." One of the highlights of this, her best album, I think it is, from 2002, is her mesmerizing take on Dylan's I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine. Her deep, not quite baritone, but nonetheless dreamy voice is, I think, the perfect accompaniment for a musical backing of echoey, twangy country rock that wouldn't sound out of place on a Cowboy Junkies album. It's always interesting to hear women do Dylan songs, simply for the gender role reversal dynamic and what that does for both the mood and the feeling behind the lyrics. So yeah, I'm a big fan of this version. Chris?
0: Yeah, I I, I am too. I actually uh she uh I think you know that she did she covered the whole album. Uh, oh, she she, did the, she
1: cheated the whole John Wesley Harding album. Really?
0: Yes, yes. Uh she she actually released it. I think it was in 2011. She released oh, wow. uh yeah, I I was listening to it earlier, and it's it's an entire uh, track for track uh, cover of John Wesley Harding, and uh, it's really really strong. Like you said, it's in that same vein. Uh, my personal favorite is also uh, "I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine" from this record, but the uh, uh, but it's kind of up and down. If you compare it to the original, uh, then you know obviously she's she's a, a fantastic singer. Uh, lots of soul. I think that she really captures some of the guilt uh, that is in, that's thematically in the strands of I Dreamed St. Augustine for sure. But yeah, there's some misfires on that record too. Like the version of Frankie Lee and Judy, Judas, Judy Priest, Judas Priest.
1: Judy is, Priest.
0: Yeah. Not, not Judy Priest, Judas Priest. Uh, <laughs> no, her, her version. It's a little, uh, it's a little off. It's, you know, cause like Frankie Lee and Judas Priest is like the ultimate, like, you know, it had, you know, uh, Nobody else but Dylan can pull it off yeah. uh, because of the way that Dylan tells the story and with the, the rhythms and everything. And so she kind of turns it into a happy-go-lucky country bounce and doesn't yeah. quite work. But, right. yeah, no, that this is just beautiful. I mean, this is, uh, you know, the, the depth of that voice, uh, the real emotion uh, to it. And, and I'll get into this in my list, too. It, it it really is interesting when uh, when you hear uh, a woman uh, sing these sort of confessional or um, personal or visceral Dylan songs, yeah. because in some ways it unlocks that emotion that much, that much more, or at least it makes it clearer that that that's the emotion Dylan's going for. yeah And that, yeah, and it's not sarcastic or anything like that or not uh, ham fisted that it's actually uh, genuine. And uh, I think that this gal, uh, she really uh, catches it uh, here. But definitely, if you go on Spotify or even on YouTube, uh, Thea Gilmore has uh, an entire album that track for tracks uh, John Wesley Harding. What's it called? She actually calls the album John Wesley Harding. So she's not, you know, she's not being cute. She's saying, this is my version of Bob Dylan's John Wesley Harding album. And it's very, very good uh, for the most part.
1: All right. And then before I go to my last one, let it be said that n- n- I, none of these one, none of these versions that I'm picking, I don't think any of them are better than the original versions. Yeah, Dylan's versions are better than all of these, but uh, these are just Dylan versions that I think are worthy of being called good, which in my opinion, not many are. <laughs> and we're going to end it with from something totally dark and serious like we have with you know with, with 13th floor elevators and Thea Gilmore to something rip-roaringly hilarious and it's The Red Hot Chili Peppers doing subterranean homesick blues from the Uplift Mofo Party Plan in 1987. You can file this under back when the Red Hot Chili Peppers were actually a good band. Do you remember that
0: Chris uh i i seem to recall uh let's see it was a long Uh, time ago yes well i mean well relatively speaking uh i was an i i was actually an adult the last time that they got a good record in californication that's my favorite of the chili peppers records by the way yeah but
1: i'm still a blood sugar guy but anyway uh
0: considering
1: the chili's lofty status as one of the pioneering bands of hip-hop rock fusion It isn't surprising that back in 1987, they took a stab at arguably the first pop music recording of proto-rap, although I would argue that the staccato word delivery of It's All Right, Mom, Only Bleeding is closer to the cadence of hip-hop, but that's just my opinion. Like much of the Chili Peppers' music during this early phase of their career, this rendition is funkier than a monkey's ass cheeks complete with a gnarly Hillel Slovak guitar riff toward the end, a sexily grinding B-A-Flea bass line, and, typical for this time in their discography, a loud sing-along, a loud group sing-along for the Lookout Kid chorus. And, of course, no Chili Pepper song during this era would be complete without a wonderfully incomprehensible improvised Anthony Kiedis rap dropped right in the middle of the song. (laughs) <laughs> frankly, frankly, it doesn't matter if Kidus understood understood the lyrics or whatever Dylan was rapping about back then. In fact, during this era of the Chili Peppers, the band was so tight and so booty-shakingly funky, it didn't matter what the hell was coming out of Kidus's mouth. <laughs> this is a yep. rare exa- this is a rare example of a band doing a cover quite predictably in their patented style. And still managing to sound awesome because the band was just in a badass zone during this
0: time. Yep, and uh, one of my favorite uh, album names of all time: Uplift, Mofo, Party Plan.
1: Yeah.
0: Yep, (laughs) and uh, yeah. Look, I mean, the Chili Peppers. You could say, "Hey, cover this song," and they'll make it sound like a Chili Pepper song. You know, (laughs) like could you imagine them doing like "If I Had a Hammer" by uh, by Pete Seeger? (laughs) If I had a hammer never dippie never I do everybody had to have on in the morning. You know. So <laughs> or,
1: it, or do, or the one I, I mentioned earlier when we were just when we were talking before we recorded. The Righteous Brothers, Unchained Melody by the Red Hot Chili Peppers.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was gonna say. Oh my
1: no. love! Oh my love.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, I was I was gonna say, so so that that's the the party game for this week, boys and girls, is <laughs> Take any song you can think of and then just try to fit it in to an Anthony Kiedis style rap. Uh, You might not be able to do it, but Anthony Kiedis sure as hell could and maybe still can. Who knows?
1: On this episode, we discuss the most interesting and offbeat Bob Dylan covers. On the next episode, we go from one Minnesota music legend to another, plus a much less talented pedophile from Indiana. That's right, after much teasing throughout many episodes, we finally deliver the first installment of our long-awaited analytical-slash-debate series, Prince vs. Michael Jackson. These guys were the two towering behemoths of 1980s pop music. They were the most commercially successful, aside from Madonna, the most musically innovative, the most artistically influential, and the most stylistically iconic musicians and pop idols of their era. Their influence and importance transcend their time and have continued to impact multiple generations of artists. We clearly, Chris and I, clearly have our favorites. Tune in to the next episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report to see where you fall in in the debate email us at curmudgeonrock at or you can follow us on Twitter at at pod. All right, Chris, now let's hear your five uh, choices for interesting Dylan covers.
0: Okay. So, you know, as we kind of said at the, the beginning uh, of the episode, that anybody that tries to say best, Uh, Dylan covers uh, is a fool. Anybody who tries to say, oh, I'm going to try to find a bunch of Dylan covers that are better uh, than the original, that's kind of a foolish mission. And so for me, it was, okay, let's find five songs or five covers of Dylan songs that are really interesting or are really evocative or have a very sharp uh, contrast uh, to the original uh, that makes them uh, or puts them higher on a pedestal. And so that's the premise that I was working with to start with. So back in 2007, uh, Todd Haynes, who's one of America's best filmmakers and has been for a long time, uh, released an, uh, a movie called "I'm Not There," which professed to be uh, based on or inspired by the life or lives of Bob Dylan. He's
1: uh, ba- basically taking the Dil- <laughs> all of Dylan's characters and archetype personalities that he put out yes. there in the sixties and extrapolating stories out of that, that aren't quite true. It's like an impressionistic Dylan. It's not a biography at all. It's, it's more like a movie about Dylan characters more than Dylan himself.
0: Correct. And yeah. And and a lot of it is it's, it's looking at um, the, the identities and the tropes and the themes and all of that, and kind of putting it through like a kaleidoscope uh, and giving it that sort of, of, of treatment. And uh, so the soundtrack to it is extraordinary. Uh, the whole thing is, is Dylan covers by lots of interesting artists. Uh, uh, I guess an honorable mention goes to the Ballad of the thin man by Stephen Malkmus and the Jicks. Uh, that's kind of an interesting uh, uh, dispatch, but I'm going to focus on one that I just find really, really fascinating, which is a version of going to Alcapulco by Jim James and Calexico. Now, the original of uh, uh, song "Going to Acapulco" uh, came out in uh, 1975 as part of the Basement Tapes. And as I understand Rec- it,
1: recorded in 67.
0: Yes, it was recorded in 67, and uh, the album was released in 1975. Now, as I understand it, this song was actually tacked on at the last minute, or came out or was tacked on you know, in a second uh, release. So it almost didn't leave the station, which would have been too bad because it's a really, really great song. Uh, And ostensibly and pretty um, thinly uh, is about uh, a visit to a prostitute down in Mexico or the idea of the excitement of going down there to have a dalliance uh, uh, with a prostitute. And, um, but it's it's this sort of uh, it's got this great melody with Rick Danko doing the background vocals and you know, Garth Hudson with the with the organ. And, you know, it features the uh, wonderful but relatively creepy uh, verse and then chorus where it says it's a wicked life. But what the hell? Everybody's got to eat. And I'm just the same as anyone else when it comes to scratching for my meat, going to Alcapulco, going on the run going down to see soft gut, going down to have some fun. Yeah, going to have some fun. So, you know, ultimately, when, when you look at the with this song, it's really not a celebration at all. It's more sort of a um, sordid uh, tale and a tale yeah. of somebody that's that's really gone off the, the tracks. But the way that it's, Dylan... It's,
1: it's, yeah, it's basically My Life Sucks... And I'm going down to Acapulco just to get anything to get my mind off my,
0: my yes my, all off
1: the shit stew that I'm living in. Right yes,
0: now. <laughs> but uh, but here's the thing: Dylan, in his version, sings it as almost a, a in a celebra- maybe ironic, but in a celebratory tone. Yeah, and it and it almost has this sort of upbeat, uh, you know, singing about good times, which you know again you know goes against the real spirit of the song and the narrative. Well, uh, Jim James does not do that. And uh, in doing this with Calexico actually makes for a wonderful touch. Uh, Calexico being uh, uh, one of the great uh, Southwestern uh, uh, independent rock bands in the last uh, 40 years. They're based in Tucson. Yeah, and I'm, they,
1: I'm a big, big Calexico fan too.
0: Yeah. yeah, and they do a lot of, uh, of Mexican uh, influenced uh, uh, music. Uh, or a lot of sort of inspired uh, instrumentation and uh, arrangements uh, in their music, but here you've got Jim James. He there's no irony and there's no celebration. It's just a mournful take uh, on uh, on the song, and he leaves no bones that this is uh, really just sort of a sad uh, transaction. And that's what it is. It's it's a transaction, but it comes from a very sad. Uh, moment uh, of life and he's backed by Calexico which they add uh, in the horns and so here you have the Mexican horns added to the ironic celebration of Mexican culture and so I thought that I think that's a neat touch and then uh, one uh, other thing to mention the uh, to me the number one reason to go out and see this movie if you haven't is this sequence that uh, Jim James and Calexico appear in which is the, uh, the Richard Gere uh, section, where Richard Gere plays one of Bob Dylan's six or seven ids, if you want to call it that. And uh, this is the, uh, the, the Western, uh, where he's the, the, you know, the Western hero, uh, you know, traveling through the, uh, through the Western town. But as he goes along, all of a sudden, there's a giraffe in the background, and it's clear that it's supposed to be a, a movie set, and then you go to Jim James on stage uh, in, a, in a nice little wink wearing the garish makeup that Dylan made famous in the Rolling uh, Thunder uh, uh, concerts. And uh, while he's singing, there's actually a young uh, child, supposedly, I guess maybe she's committed suicide, but a, a young child in a coffin on the stage as he's singing. And so it it gets to be this really kind of astonishing um mixture of evocative images and sounds and uh so which is interesting because of, of all this things you know we're, we're at the funeral of a young girl in a western town what are they singing an ode to a whore yeah. uh so it's it's really uh pretty profound and so uh, Arturo, any thoughts on that
1: yeah i mean james really gets well yeah i mean he, he obviously gets but he pulls the desolation and the sadness out of this song in a really good, effective way. This is definitely my favorite of the five uh, versions that you chose. This is a good version, yeah. It, it, and and, it, and in some in a weird way, it is kind of faithful to the original a little bit because it, you could totally hear the band, you know, mm-hmm. um, oh, yeah. band band. You could totally hear like this is the arrangement is not unlike what they would have done with this, right?
0: Yeah. Well, and the interesting thing is, is there's really not that much of a difference between Dylan and James's vocals um, uh, in terms of the quality of the vocals and the way they sound. But there's just a matter of that, that interpretive uh, uh, switch up by James to play it straight as opposed to, you know, having that little bit of. Uh, dickish glee right. in the voice that, that Dylan had so right. uh, interesting stuff but we're checking out and especially uh, the I'm not there uh, soundtrack it's it's everywhere where you can find it uh, uh, anything and like most records these days just do a YouTube search and you you'll exactly find, you'll Why find pay it money yeah Why exactly money? go on YouTube yeah you're,
1: no. you're, you're already paying a lot for your internet connection don't pay hey, anymore
0: hey hey the uh, you know the curmudgeon rock report now has its official uh, tagline. Hey, why pay money? <laughs> yeah, so, so that's what we're all about, boys and girls. Yeah. So, okay. So for the next one, uh, and so this is this is an interesting uh, uh, juxtaposition if you think about your early 60s history. On the left, you've got Bob Dylan, who's, you know, the white boy from Minnesota playing the folk, uh, uh, the folk god. And on the right, you've got Sam Cooke who's, you know, one of the great uh, black soul singers of all time, who kind of basically was able to mix uh, gospel and R&B vocal traditions and basically uh, turned it into what we now know as soul music. Uh, now, Sam Cooke, uh, it was an interesting case. Uh, he is, by this point, you know, in, well, Dylan had done "Blowing in the Wind" obviously in 1961, and it had become a, a big-time anthem in the anti-war movement and in the civil rights movement. It's this sort of ultimate, um, uh, you know, fighting from behind or fighting from underneath uh, anthem. And Sam Cooke. Uh, I guess this really had a profound uh, effect on him. Uh, Peter Goralnik, uh, the the wonderful author, who, by the way, is my dream guest for this podcast down the road. Uh, Mr. Goralnik, if you're listening, we want you on here. Uh, but he wrote a biography of Sam Cooke about 15 years ago called Dream Boogie. And uh, on page 512 of Dream Boogie, uh, it's uh, talking about Sam Cooke, uh in his uh, mindset coming off the March on Washington uh, and uh, him basically talking to a friend of his and the book says uh, paraphrasing a little bit, but it says when he first heard blowing in the wind on the new free will and Bob Dylan album that his friend had just given him, he was so carried away with the message and the fact that a white boy had written it, that uh, he told his friend, he was almost ashamed not to have written something like that himself. And uh, from that uh, came the inspiration for Sam Cooke to write. A change is going to come. Uh, that's the good part of this story. The bad part of this story is the actual cover of "Blowing in the Wind" that Sam Cooke included on his classic uh, live album, "Live uh, you know, Sam Sam Cooke at the Copa," uh, which is recorded in one thousand, nine hundred and sixty-four at the Copa Cabana uh, in New York City. And this is Sam Cooke as the ultimate showman which is another way of saying that uh, this is uh, Sam Cooke, uh, you know, being the, uh, the glitzy uh, song and dance man for a white audience. And so uh, what you get, uh, not just with Blowing in the Wind, but through the album, it's this very Vegas-worthy, kind of schmaltzy big band treatment of a lot of songs. Like If I Had a Hammer uh, is one of those. That's why it was on my mind. Uh, this Little Light of Mine, which is the old uh, you know, Negro Uh, spiritual that Alan Lomax first caught is on here, but it gets the same treatment, you know, kind of like this jazzy swinging, you know, almost like uh, something Dean Martin worthy. And so Sam Cooke is caught up in this and he gets, and he gives blowing in the wind that schmaltzy weird kind of shuffling treatment in music. Yet at the same time, the vocals are incredible. I mean, with that, you know, that rasp, and that passion that uh that cook sang with he really uh he blazes his vocals with the conviction uh that the song actually holds and so it's a very it's a very weird listen because if you're if you're listening to it casually you're just hearing this like boogie woogie uh early 60s like uh, lounge act basically uh but then when he gets into the whole you know yes and how many years can a mountain exist it was washed to the sea yes and how many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free uh the way he yelps that and cries some of that out and the beats that he finds in that uh really uh you know p- give do justice uh to the song uh for the record no one will ever do a better version of "Blown in the wind than dylan uh that's i think one of his single best recordings and one of his best vocals in his entire catalog uh, but you know, Sam Cooke, uh, you know, found uh, the blackness that was, in, or in, he found inherent blackness uh, in "Blown in the Wind," and he gives it a great vocal treatment here, if not uh, a, a great musical treatment. What do you think, Art?
1: My uh, feedback here will be very short and brief. I think this version sucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, like I'm not into at all this. The snappy cabaret showtime schmaltzy Sinatra arrangement, and I think uh, great vocals like Sam Cooke was a great singer, and uh, great vocals can only go so far uh, yep. in trying to uh, save a turd sandwich of a song. So moving on,
0: uh, yeah, now so this, please. yeah, exactly, yeah, take my wife, please. So you now here's here's the uh, kind of a different take on the same dynamic. Uh, black men covering uh, uh, white man Bob Dylan's songs. Uh, and now in this case, uh, it gets more interesting because what we have is we've got the epitome of phony gospel as rendered by an actual bona fide, legit gospel guy. Uh, and so here we're talking about Pop Staples, the patriarch of the Staples singers. Uh, Pops was an OG. Uh, He's born in Mississippi in 1914, which means he's coming up, you know, at the formation of the Delta Blues. And, you know, Mississippi in the uh, 1920s, 30s, 40s is kind of like, you know, that is the um, kind of the gestation of uh, modern black music, where you're getting gospel, you're getting blues, uh, you're getting a lot of that. And like a lot of other people, Pops and his family found their way to Chicago there was this big migration that happened Uh, oddly, but it's true that a lot of uh, uh, black folks from Chicago uh, that, you know, blacks in Chicago, they have their roots in Mississippi. Um, And so pops, you know, he gets this good career. Uh, Eventually most of it is gospel and most of it's uh, uh, low key, but then there's some R and and some blues and some pop and they eventually uh, get famous. So, at the end of his life, Pop, Pops is in his 80s, but he's still thinking he has a lot to say, and he still has a lot of energy. And uh, he does this version of Gotta Serve Somebody, uh, which some people, I think already included, would argue is one of Dylan's worst songs. Uh, it's
1: Dylan's worst period. His obnoxiously self-righteous Christian period. Fuck that
0: yeah i yeah i i know and look got got it got to serve somebody isn't it i I happen to love the lyric i think the lyric is 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 really silly but it's got really silly verses and a really profound chorus uh so pops uh interesting story here and i'll just make it short uh so he uh an album came out in 2015 called don't lose this uh pops was working on a bunch of stuff the last couple years of his life uh, Gotta Serve Somebody's actually a live song that features him and his daughters, I think, that was tacked on. But he had all these uh, half recorded, I think it was like basically just him and his guitar, uh, a bunch of songs, that, and he wasn't able to get them out because he had a fall at home and had a concussion and died a few days later in uh, 1998. Well, this album comes out in 2015. It was a combination of Mavis Staples and Jeff Tweedy. Yes, Jeff Tweedy from Wilco and his son Spencer they rescued these tapes and, uh, you know, added some bass and some drums and guitar and other stuff. And they came out with this and it was, it's a really, really great record. It's, it's blues and gospel and a lot of great stuff. But here we have this version of got to serve somebody on there, uh, at the end. And here's the thing. Pops takes this really goofy, phony, uh, almost a country song. I mean, the way that Dylan originally did it, 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 it kind of reeks of that pop country that became a big thing in like the late seventies and early eighties. And he takes that and he gives it this nice little, like, what would you call it? Almost like a rock back and forth. It's like kind of this, uh, uh, almost jaunty take on this. It's looser and it's uh, sung. It's sung with real intent rather than an ambiguous intent or, because you know when dylan did that back and like you said it was obnoxious but for me it's it's obnoxious because the whole time you listen to stuff like the album soul uh, train coming and saved you're wondering if dylan's just pulling your leg yeah <laughs> or you know or if he's just like being a dick and he, or he's like you know basically not a parody but he's you almost wonder if he's doing a satire uh but no, in Pop's hands, it actually becomes a real gospel song, and he he really means it that, that this is the um, you know, this is the uh, the ultimate battle, uh, for good for good and evil, and you know, you either serve the devil or you serve God, but either way, you got to serve somebody, and uh, in in Dylan's case, it might have just been you know like tongue in cheek, but not for Pop's, and you can hear it in the performance. Uh, the funny part is. For me, the funniest part of this is he, the original Dylan song is like five and a half minutes long and like six verses. Well, Pop skips like three or like he basically skips uh, a bunch of the lyrics. So I guess that's why, you know, I like it. But uh, he comes back in uh, after a solo with the, the song's goofiest, most famous lines is, you know, uh, you can call me Bob or you can call me Zimmy. And uh, th- that's where Pops comes right back in to the song, um, which I, for uh, whatever reason, I find hilarious. But uh, this is worth checking out. Uh, it's like I said, it's a masterful conversion of phony, ironic gospel into real gospel by one of the uh, a guy who was there from the very beginning who took his gospel uh, background into uh, mainstream pop and, and got famous. So. Uh, Really underappreciated talent, uh, really underappreciated influence on uh, modern black music is Pop Staples.
1: Yeah, Pop Staples is great. Um, Was great, you know, the the late Pop Staples. And uh, as far as this version is concerned, I just give it a one big fat eh. You know, in the end, it's just a gospel preacher telling me to believe in God. Fuck that. I'd rather listen to his daughters. OK, now, now, now we're going to go to an actual female singer, another female singer doing a Dylan song,
0: Chris. Yeah. Yes, we will. So uh, the, Nico Case, uh, who's one of the more fascinating uh, artists of the last uh, 20 years in uh, in rock and what we know is all country. So uh, this is her cover of Buckets of Rain from a live album she did from Austin City Limits in 2007 called Live from Austin. So, uh, Nico Case, uh, she is from Western Canada, specifically British Columbia, and has made a career. It's a, an, an interesting dichotomy. She's known from two places. One, her phenomenal uh, solo career. She's a uh, a country uh, a country singing chanteuse uh, of the highest order. Uh, wonderful uh, voice, wonderful interpretive gifts, and just a really uh, great uh, song. You know. Uh, songwriting voice in other words she just you know, she plums uh into her depths really well but the other way that mo- a lot of people know her are is from her work with the new pornographers which she's only like a um, an ancillary part of uh that's really ac newman and dan behar and but you know it's her singing on that which is just great some great harmony singing and all that so very talented uh, uh woman uh and very uh, soulful uh singer and this is another one of those instances like art was talking about that. It's always interesting when women take on Dylan, uh, in this case, it's really interesting because uh, you're talking about buckets of rain, which is how Dylan ends, uh, arguably his masterpiece of masterpieces blood on the tracks, otherwise known as the, I just done lost my woman album. Uh, you know, his, his, uh, his, uh, lament over, uh, over getting, uh, divorced, and uh and so there's just you know a lot of a lot of imagery in here you know where uh you know I've, I've been meek and hard like an oak i've seen pretty people disappear like smoke friends will arrive friends will disappear if you want me honey baby i'll be here uh so it's this uh, really uh it's a song about longing uh and and loss uh from a male point of view but then nico takes it in her hand and makes it indescribably feminine in her in her translation it's just this real like the um the heartache is just dripping uh from her vocal and you know she does a very it's a it's an efficient take it, it it's not you know her version is only it's only like two and a half minutes three minutes long uh in concert but it's just a really gripping uh, uh take on this just really resonant uh, uh resonant voice and, you know, the way she interprets it, um, it you, you can just feel the, um, there's almost like a, um, uh, there's more of a melancholy. There's not really an anger. It's melancholy and it's confusion, too. I mean, I think that there's really a, a, a confused pain. Uh, if you, even in the original, just from, from the lyric, it's like, all of a sudden I've been left here and what now, what the hell am I supposed to do? Uh, and I think that Nico uh, captures that very well uh, in her version, too. And, th- and that's an album we're checking out, too, is that, you know, the Live from Austin record, that uh, she's a really dynamic uh, live performer and just an incredible uh, singer. So I definitely recommend that. And uh, Buckets of Rain, uh, one of the great feminizations of Dylan you'll ever hear.
1: Yeah, this is a good version. I like this version. Uh, musically, it's very faithful to the original. Yes, it is. speaking. Um, the, the difference is all in the vocal performance, for sure.
0: Yeah, you know? and uh, you know, I actually prefer this one because I think that it's it's a little bit reverent. But I've always kind of had a thing that's always bugged me about buckets of rain. And you'll laugh at this, uh, Artie. Is it just me, or does Dylan, with his guitar line, quote Mungo and Jerry's in the summertime?
1: It, it could be. Yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me if. That, I mean, that song was, was a few years older. Than, uh, than blood on the tracks, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me if Dylan actually was, you know, slyly,
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: kind of making fun of Mungo Jerry.
0: Yeah, summertime,
1: da, na, na, na. <laughs> yeah, and, and so
0: and if if you go back and you listen to that guitar line, I swear to God, that's Mungo and Jerry's in the summertime, it's not and it's Mungo
1: and Jerry, it's Mungo Jerry.
0: Oh, well, I always thought it was Mungo and Jerry.
1: No, it's one guy.
0: Okay, but I, I I thought I thought it was Mungo and Jerry.
1: No, it was one guy. It's not Tom oh, and on. Jerry, Mungo and Jerry. It's just Mungo Jerry.
0: Oh, it is Mungo Jerry. Okay. Yeah. I'm looking it up. Oh, okay. Well, hey, at least that that that's not as bad as calling the uh singer uh, the guitarist from Blind Melon Prince. So, <laughs> you you got you got to give me some sl- You got to give me some slack there, you know. So, on that note, that's the Nico Case portion uh, of this list. Um, and like, again, wonderful, wonderful version of Buckets of Rain. Right. And now uh, we've saved the, the most intriguing entry on this list, I think, uh, for last. Uh, I know that we spent some time earlier in this episode goofing on Rolling Stone's efforts to do the best. So it's worth mentioning that this one is number four on, uh, on their list of the oh. best. Uh, which surprised me because I oh, would <laughs> oh mama yeah, I wouldn't put this on on a list of best anything. but if you want to make it uh, on a list of most interesting Dylan covers, this might be number one. Uh, so this is Elvis Presley doing a version of a relative Dylan Obscurity uh, tomorrow is a long time. Uh, and interesting story here uh, this is uh, from 1966. And the song appears on the soundtrack to one of, you know, basically Elvis did uh, the same movie over and over again for eight years. And this is one of his, uh, and it's up on one of the soundtracks to his movies, the movie uh, Spin Out. It shows up there, but it was recorded as part of the sessions for his gospel album, How Great Thou Art. Uh, which I find kind of interesting that uh, there was this attempt maybe to sneak that into the, um, into the gospel uh, record. But see, this is really, really interesting because this is, uh, you know, Elvis doing what Elvis does is he just a, a masterful uh, vocal performance uh, of, of the song really kind of capturing the heart uh, of the song and the wistfulness of the song and, in, in, in just really, uh, wonderful uh, vocal, but the arrangement is a really strange, mystical, but ultimately great choice, which is almost like this swamp laden, uh, uh, not pedal steel, but it's like this like this acoustic uh, guitar that seems like it would be from like a back porch jamboree in like Metairie, Louisiana, you know, and it has this shuffle. Uh, Elvis's version goes on for like six minutes. And so it has that, this acoustic uh, blues, uh, like little uh, minimal riff that defines the shuffle through, uh, through the whole, uh, the whole take. And so it's Elvis doing Elvis uh, via a song where Bob is definitely doing Bob. Uh, The, the version that made the light of day, the, the official version, is from a live performance he did in New York City in uh, 1963. And you know, again, this is another one of those uh, breakup songs or laments or whatever you want to call it, uh, where there's real emotion, where uh, you know Dylan is really... In, in his, you, you don't really feel it as much. It's almost like a folk uh, ballad. But in Elvis's hands, uh, you definitely feel the uh, uh, the heartbreak, even with that backdrop. And so it's, again, it's a strange juxtaposition, but uh, it's a wonderful listen. Uh, I'll I'll give it that. The more I, again, getting ready for this episode, I probably listened to it ten times. And man, did that grow on me. It's like, you know. So I've got. I've got Elvis. Uh, Elvis's voice is going to be haunting my dreams here pretty soon. But it's wonderful stuff.
1: Yeah, the, I'm not the world's biggest Elvis fan, but I'll admit this is this pretty pretty nice version of a of a Dylan song. Um, it, it kind of it kind of makes me angry because this is the kind of music Elvis should have been doing <laughs> throughout yeah. most of his career, instead of the schlock that he was involved with that that the Colonel put him through. Yeah, this is the kind of shit Elvis should have been doing. Like I I've always said, man. You know, it, it, if you think about what kind of like Elvis, like once he got out of making movies and got back to performing live, like mm-hmm. it would have been great if just like Creedence Clearwater Revival would have been his backing band. And oh, just yeah. Have John, and just have John Fogarty write songs for Elvis. That's what Elvis should have been doing. <laughs> So now we are in the vault And the vault means Old album recommendations Albums from as far back As we want it to be 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s Even even the noughties Which was now 20 years ago Uh, My choice for a vault recommendation uh, Well we're doing a Dylan Uh, Dylan is a 60s icon So I'm going to do an album from the 60s And this is by a garage rock band called The Monks. And their only album, Black Monk Time, from 1966, like I said. Now, here's the premise. Five American GIs stationed in Germany, or back then, West Germany, form a rudimentary garage rock combo. Over time, said garage rock combo evolves and releases just one album that, through word of mouth, becomes one of the key touchstone influences in both punk rock and the unfortunately titled kraut rock, thereby influencing multiple generations of indie and alternative bands. Does this sound far-fetched? Maybe, but this is exactly what these guys did in the mid-1960s. The story of this album begins in 1963 in the small German town of Gelhausen, which is where the members of the band met and were stationed at a small U.S. military base there. Calling themselves the Torquays, T-O-R-Q-U-A-Y-S, lame name, uh, over the next year, they would play rock and roll standards in pubs and dive bars, frequented by drunken servicemen and all kinds of riffraff. In early 1965, the Torquays, having completed their military service, decided to take their music more seriously, and they moved to the larger town of Stuttgart and became a part of the city's hip bar band scene. It was at this time, and in this environment, that the band started experimenting with their sound, riffing extensively with distortion and feedback, stripping their original songs down to intense, repetitive rhythm pieces, and lyrically tackling scathing indictments of the Vietnam War and a very peculiarly misanthropic take on love and relationships. Upon getting a small German management team behind them, the band underwent a radical image makeover, choosing to dress up on stage as Catholic monks, even shaving the top of their heads in the traditional monk-style tonsure and wearing ropes as belts and re- re- renaming themselves well the monks <laughs> if their on stage attire was shocking to many and offensive to some the band's impact was augmented by the loud dissonant racket they produced on stage polydor records however was impressed enough to give them a record deal after seeing them perform in hamburg at one of the many clubs the Beatles played at years earlier. Recorded in a studio in Cologne in late 65, the album was released in March 1966. Because of the abrasive nature of several of the song's staunch anti-Vietnam War messages, Polydor refused to promote and distribute the album in the U.S. Things didn't fare much better throughout continental Europe, where... constant gigging and promotional activities, the band's confrontational image and music got positive critical reviews, but not much in terms of concert attendance and commercial sales. By the time that the epical year of 1967 rolled around, the monks were in dire straits. To expand their appeal, the band reluctantly delved into soft pop rock with slight shades of psychedelia, The result was the single Love Can Tame the Wild, which, predictably, tanked and did nothing. They opened for Jimi Hendrix in May of that year, but by that time, the band's lack of success and sellout attempt led to a lot of inner band conflict. They disbanded later that year. Now, throughout the years and decades, though, their one shot of glory, Black Monk Time, has seen its stature and reputation shine via the admiration of rock connoisseurs, and record archivists. Its raw, quirky, intense, indelibly original sound and angry lyrics draped in ironic humor draw an undeniably direct line to punk, post-punk, and the pioneering work of 1970s German bands such as Can, Neu, and Faust. Oh yeah, and Jack White has gone on record saying this is one of his all-time favorite albums. All right, so Chris, next. Uh, okay. The, the, the last, uh, our, last uh, our last segment and uh, fiddly, fittingly so, you know, the last shot of greatness from a once great band.
0: Uh, why, yes. Why, yes. Uh, so uh, so now, just in the last couple of years, it's interesting because to me now, uh, I've been a ostensibly a quote unquote fan of Black Sabbath for a long time but probably in the way that a lot of you were that obviously I was familiar with the three or four, uh, classics from paranoid, uh, and, uh, from the, uh, from the early record. And then I had gotten turned on to master of reality about 25 years ago, which is one of the great stone records of all time. Yeah. (laughs) But then, uh, but from there it's okay. Now I didn't give it much thought and, you know, they Sabbath has the rest of this catalog. And, you know, we all know that uh, Ozzy eventually they all were wasted and Ozzy was the most wasted of the four and eventually got his ass fired. Uh, and so I didn't really find much of an incentive to, uh, to explore the rest of the catalog until about three years ago. And then I was like, well, what is it I've been missing? And that's when I came across uh, this, which I guess you could call late period, sabbath i mean they did
1: i would say mid-period this is mid-period
0: yeah i guess you would say well late period with ozzy for sure um and this is the beginning of the end i suppose so this is uh, from 1975 and this is uh the black sabbath album sabotage uh really 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 great record it just you know there's not much to really say about it other than it just rocks And it's, in a way, it's surprising because with their albums, number four and uh, Sabbath, bloody Sabbath, uh, you know, they had been experimenting uh, with a lot of stuff with keyboards, with balladry, uh, with uh, sort of, you know, like think about with the, with stuff like um, uh, the stuff on uh, Sabbath, bloody Sabbath uh, with, you know, a national acrobat and, all that kind of stuff. And almost like it gets this kind of like wacky uh, uh, not just not necessarily psychedelia, but it's, it's like, they're trying uh, their hardest not to be the Sabbath that was so awesome on massive reality.
1: Yeah.
0: And so now we get the sabotage and I guess they finally, they, at least for this album, they kind of said, ah, fuck that. And they just went back to being just this awesomely mighty guitar riff driven band And it's just this, the album just hits really, really hard. I mean, it starts with the song Hole in the Sky, which is just this, just banger. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of nuance to it. It's just like, okay, yeah, it's, uh, it's just really, uh, really intense, and then you get, uh, well, well, I would say it's, it's a more artsy version of what they were doing in those first couple records where you would get like the seven-minute songs with like four different riffs and like all these sections. Like think like fairies wear boots or anything like that. But here it's a little bit artsier. Like you get uh, my personal favorite song on it is Symptom of the Universe. That's mine too. Which just absolutely rocks balls. Yeah. But then it has these like really interesting sections in it where it just kind of you know, all of a sudden gets really noodly in the mm-hmm. middle with the, uh, with the solo that has this really kind of echoey, uh, uh, sinewy uh, uh, guitar uh, 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 soloing by, uh, by Naomi. And, and then it ends with this really kind of nice coda uh, with, you know, kind of just a nice uh, mid uh, uh, drum beat by Bill Ward and acoustic playing by iomi with uh ozzy uh doing like his best like i guess blue singing or soul singing or whatever you want to call it yeah and you know i've i've seen some uh academics say that uh that a song like this is kind of the beginning of what what we can call thrash metal mm. or or speed speed metal i yeah, mean this,
1: this definitely predates motorhead by a couple of years because motorhead yeah. Motorhead released their first single in 77 the first album, yes. I think, was '79. So yeah, I mean, yeah. I this this is before. I mean, I think I think Lemmy Lemmy Kilmeister was still in Hawkwind at this point.
0: Yeah, and so so you're getting this kind of like chugging, kind of uh, wacky, kind of like all over the stuff, like three or four part uh, kinds of things. And and there's a couple of instances where it's even uh, more pronounced uh, than this on this record. Uh, there's the uh, the precursor to Los Angeles era blizzard of Oz bark at the moon, uh, Ozzy, uh, with the song, I, am I going insane, which, which it's is the my, worst song on the record.
1: Yeah.
0: It's the worst song on the record, but it's fun anyway. It's, you know, obviously the concept is, you know, Ozzy and like mass overdubs, uh, you know, like it's like like 20 Ozzy's screaming at you about going insane. <laughs> uh, and then it, it ends with, uh, uh, a really uh, fascinating song suite called The Writ mm. which uh, basically has, uh, you know, has uh, two or three really great riffs that have nothing to do with each other. And so it's almost like this stitched together suite uh, that's on it. But like you said, with The writ it, it definitely makes you think of like witches and satans and, and black magic and all of that. And actually, uh, it's, probably the only black Sabbath song where Ozzy wrote the lyrics. Mm -hmm. Uh, geezer wrote about 95% of the lyrics, uh, for black Sabbath, geezer Butler, but Ozzy actually manages to get, um, uh, to get uh, some of the, uh, some of the stuff, uh, uh, some of his own words, uh, uh, in there. So I said to me, uh, it's just a pure metal record. Uh, because it's out in '75, as as already pointed out, this is a couple of years before Motorhead. Uh, this is about this is several years before Judas Priest, and so it's kind of like smack dab in the middle. It's it's later than proto metal, and it's earlier than the British theatrical metal, and it's a it's very much early uh, 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 before the LA stuff, and so it's right in the middle. But you should check it out just because it's a really strong uh dumb fun bash out uh rock record and it really is i mean a really great uh gourmet metal record so uh sabotage definitely check it out that is this uh episode's version of uh the vault and uh here we are at the end of another journey of the curmudgeon rock report uh What's your uh, What's your feelings there, Arturo?
1: Um, yeah, well, you know, we, we we always wanted to do a Dylan covers episode, and uh, we got it out of our system. So yes, we did. It's out, uh-huh. and uh, we'll do that. And and now something that we've been itching to do for a long time will be our next episode, and it will be our uh, our, our our long promised debate slash discussion slash meditation on Prince and Michael Jackson. Uh, we call it Prince versus Michael, but it's really about, it's really, I mean, I, I don't want to say too much cause you know, because it's going to be for the next episode, but these guys, they defined the 80, the 1980s and their careers paralleled each other in so many eerie ways. Like they eat, they, they both came out with singles at the same time, epical albums at the same time. You know, they, they died not too long. You know, they, they, they both died. Yeah. Almost the same stuff. Both, addicted to drugs and barely able to walk. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Like, both were androgynous. It's just weird. These I mean, but these guys, these two um um in Chris Rock uh, a long time ago. And this is the last thing I'm going to say cuz I want to save some for the episode uh that for the next episode, you know. You know, back in the 80s, you know, you were either a prince fan or a Michael Jackson fan, you know. And he, and he was going off on that. Like, "Well, you know, uh, I mean, Prince had all the hits." Sorry, Michael Jackson had all these hits. And so did Prince. But Michael Jackson had bigger hits. Okay, let's put it this way. Michael Jackson won the battle. Prince won the war. And Mm -hmm. I, 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 I second that notion 100%.
0: And I don't. The Curmudgeon Rock Report will keep on rocking if you do. Catch us where you catch all the podcasts. We know you love rock and roll as much as we do. Support us with donations at patreon.com slash curmudgeonrock. Find show notes and more on our Medium site. Join us next time as rock nerds smack you with knowledge. Stay rude. Stay crude. Stay sophisticated. Thank you for listening.